Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler om USA. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har længe tænkt, at op til selve valgdagen, op til den 3. november, hvor Donald Trumps skæbne skal afgøres af de amerikanske vælgere, der vil jeg tale med en rigtig radikal tænker. En, som så hele verden udefra, som kom fra vores egen oplysningstradition, men som ikke var en del af polariseringen i USA, og som ikke var hverken synes, nu må vi også prøve at forstå Trump, eller nu skal vi restore the soul of the nation. En, som var i stand til, ud fra vores egen filosofiske historie, at træde ud af vores politiske agenda i dag, og anskue rationelt og radikalt, hvad er det, der er på spil ved det valg? Yes, good evening to our viewers here in Copenhagen, and, or wherever you are. And especially good evening to you, Leah Uppi from London. We're so grateful that you want to spend 45 minutes of your Friday evening with us. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Og jeg har hele tiden tænkt, at denne ene skulle være Leah Uppi, fordi jeg læste interview med hende her i avisen for et par år siden, hvor jeg for hver eneste linje, hun sagde, blev forbløffet over hendes evne til at tænke klart realistisk og idealistisk på samme tid. And I, I loved every sentence of the interview. I was so inspired and meeting someone who had the starting point in Enlightenment ideals, obviously knew her Marx as well, could talk about socialism and revolution and democracy. Lea Yppi er 41 år gammel. Hun er født og opvokset i det kommunistiske Albanien. Derfra rejste hun til Storbritannien, hvor hun i en ung alder blev professor på London School of Economics. Hun har allerede udgivet flere væsentlige bøger om de helt store temaer. Migration, demokrati, kapitalisme, verdensorden, partisystemer. Det hele. Og så er hun en af Storbritanniens førende venstreorienterede intellektuelle. Hun er engageret i alle mulige forskellige intellektuelle miljøer omkring venstrefløjen. Og hun er vidunderligt klar at høre på. So ever since that interview we did with you, I wanted to make another interview with you. So thank you very much for being here with us. Thank you. It's wonderful. It's wonderful to speak to you. Så jeg vil meget gerne tale med hende, og hun sagde heldigvis ja. Og her følger vores samtale om, hvad det er, der virkelig er på spil, når amerikanerne går til valg. Uh, I would like to ask you first about the book that you're writing currently, because I realized uh, that you're writing something that I thought was an autobiography. And it scared me a little because you're younger than I am. And I didn't know that I had the age of writing an autobiography yet. But it's not an ordinary autobiography. What, what is it for a book that you're writing right now? Um, well, I mean, it is in some ways an autobiography, but in other ways not. It's a book about my first um, 18 years of life. So <laughs> it's, a, it's an autobiography of early childhood and teenage years. It's the, the focus is kind of on my life in those first 18 years, but the, the real focus is on the transition from socialism to liberalism in Albania. And part of the motivation for the book was precisely what you started with, which was that uh, a lot of people, when they hear that I'm a socialist, they are okay with that. But when they hear that I'm from Albania, they're shocked. And <laughs> they want to know how come someone who comes from Albania is actually a socialist. And the first person who wants to know that is my mother. So, <laughs> so, uh, so I had to write a book to explain How come that even though I come from this uh, communist society, arguably one of the most uh, isolated, repressive communist societies in the world, uh, one on which not many people knew very much about until very recently, how come someone like that can become a socialist? And so the book is an effort to 
actually revisit the part of my life that I spent under communism and the part of my life that I spent in the kind of early years of liberalism in Albania and go through the battle of ideas. And it, the book is really a book about freedom, although it's freedom in context. So it's a book about how these different systems, liberalism and socialism, have appropriated what freedom is and what it means to people and what democracy is. And I'm trying to talk about the ways in which it was articulated in these different contexts and how people saw it, the illusions, the disappointments, the kind of betrayals that came with that. And so the life is only the context in which I'm hoping these larger questions around what freedom is, what democracy is, what it means to be unfree under a particular structure, whether it's liberalism or socialism, what that means for our lives. Just one more question about the book and, and, and your bi biography. Were you a socialist before you left Albania to come to the UK? Um, no, I wouldn't say so. I come from a dissident family in Albania. Uh, my family, and this is also part of the story in the book, uh, although my grandfather was a socialist, he went to prison for 15 years under communism. And uh, my parents were very much on the sort of dissident side. So that shape that dissidence actually but i didn't know that because of course when we lived under communism i wasn't told that my family was dissident because it was a very censored society authoritarian so so the book part of it half of the book is about how you could live a very happy childhood in a very unhappy family and not know what's going on around you and just see the world with the eyes of a child who just experiences things for the first time and you know takes for granted things that we now no longer take for granted, takes for granted anti-imperialism, for example, or takes for granted, you know, capitalism knows what capitalism is at certain levels. So I guess I was, so to answer your question, was I a socialist? No, I was not a socialist when I started university, but I had also already lived enough years under liberalism to kind of experience through my parents the disenchantment of these first years. And so the second half of the book is actually about what happened, how the transition was managed and, the kind of the promise of liberation and the disillusionment that came with that. So I guess I had some socialist theory as a result of my upbringing because I went to school and I was taught all these things. And then I had a lot of disappointment with liberalism. And then <laughs> these things somehow came together later in life and, and created the product that I am now, I guess. I'll, we'll return to that question later because I, I'm always very curious today when people say they're socialist and they just refer to either social democratic project or refer to liberal ideals that are not realized through liberal institutions. So I will return to later, I'll, I'll, I'll ask you how you define uh, socialism. But first I want to ask you from your perspective, what you have learned on, of, uh, or what are your reflections on these last four years of Donald Trump? Um, well, so the, the Trump election is, I guess, increasingly presented in the media as sort of bound up with the fate of democracy itself. And so we're told that it's a matter of life and death, not just literally in terms of the current pandemic, but also literally in terms of the life and death of democracy. And so we're told that, you know, democracy was fundamentally challenged under these four years of Trump in office, and it would be existentially threatened in the next four years if Trump were reelected. And I I think there's, in some ways, there's good reasons to see it that way. I mean, it's not with every election that we have to worry about whether the president will accept the results or whether all the votes will be delivered and counted or whether the courts will intervene and so on. But at the same time, I think there are two risks. 
the first one is that we tend to assume that democracy was fine until Trump showed up and that all we have to do is to ensure that Trump is no longer the president to make sure that democracy returns to this intact form in which we've inherited it um, from Obama. And the second one is a question that reduces our understanding of democracy, I think, to a very narrow phenomenon, which is electoral representation and electoral participation. And I think this kind of obsession with electoral performance, with voting, with the day of voting and so on, as actually I think ends up being more part of the problem than part of the solution. You know, the Swiss philosopher uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau used to say, talking about British citizens, that they're free only one day every so often, that's election day, and then the rest of the lives they return to being slaves. And I think that's kind of true. I mean, we have this promise of, you know, elections, everything that is around elections is about bringing us freedom or liberating us from the kind of fundamental threats that uh, we face. But I think on the other hand, some of the countries that we consider the most advanced democracies in the world, the US is one of them, are very much in their baby steps, if they can be called democracies at all. Because I think, uh, you know, the kind of disproportionate attention that we pay to both the moment of voting and to the individual figure of who we vote for is actually in contrast with the amount of attention that I think we should be paying to the processes and the trends that we, that, that take us to where we are. So I think to wrap, to, to just make a long story short, I think, of course, we have reason to worry about the fundamental threat to democracy that Trump brings. So voter suppression, we have reason to worry about the fact that people uh, won't, you know, that their votes won't be counted or that the ballots won't arrive on time or that the court will intervene and so on. All the things that people are talking now about when they talk about the Trump threat to democracy. But I think just as we have reason to worry about voter suppression during election day, we have reason to worry also with, about people who never turn up to vote because they have lost faith in the system or because they never had that faith in the first place or people who can't vote because they're not allowed to vote because they're either immigrants or um, people with, I don't know, serious criminal convictions. So I think we have, in that sense, no more reason to worry about the postal system, which is an immediate threat to the election results and to the democracy, than we have about the kind of long-term sabotage to the health system or the education system or the criminal justice system, which is responsible for the fact that people don't turn up to vote at all or that they're so alienated and so disenfranchised from the uh, political system that they don't think that there is any point in actually going to vote and believing in elections. And these other phenomena, I think, are not phenomena that manifest themselves just on election days. They're phenomena that accumulate for days, for weeks, for months, for years, and they contribute to the kind of alienation and political disaffection that leads to the election of people like Trump. So my impression is that in the kind of, in the four years that have gone by, and this is my, in a way, my assessment of the Trump tenure, there has been a kind of disproportionate amount of attention to the person of Trump and not enough attention to trying to understand the underlying causes that have led of the Trump phenomenon. And what I mean when I talk about the Trump phenomenon is the rise of the far right that the, uh, Trump himself has legitimized. And also not enough attention to understanding how come that after this big promise of the progressive movement with Obama and so on, someone like Trump, who is the exact opposite, the polar opposite, who wants to be the polar opposite of Obama, could emerge and find 
the degree of support to control the most powerful country on earth. So I think there is a kind of, there's a risk that when we obsess with the figure of Trump and when we turn the election into a kind of Trump plebiscite, we legitimize that which Trump himself has been trying to legitimize all along, which is the sort of personalization of power. I mean, this has been one of the main features of the Trump uh, administration has been to kind of turn the offices of the state into a kind of question of private management. You know, he's put his advisors in uh, his key mem members of his family in key government positions. He tried to run foreign relations in the way in which one would run one's private um, salon. And so in every step of the way, he's tried to marginalize or to disregard procedures in favor of the individual, in favor of ad hoc interventions. And my worry is that with the election, both with the assessment of the past four years and with how we're reflecting on it right now, which is a moment of heightened sensitivity to the question, is that if we focus on Trump, the man, rather than the kind of phenomenon that Trump represents, uh, we risk making ourselves unable to understand that phenomenon when it kind of rears its head up again four years down the line if another Trump-like figure, possibly an even worse Trump-like figure, comes back to the fore in the best case scenario, which would be having a four-year democratic tenure now. So it seemed to me, I was in New Hampshire with my son, who's a huge Bernie Sanders supporter, uh, in, in February, and it seemed to me just about a year ago that there was a very strong left-wing movement in America that radical questions were being asked and that this radical rupture that Trump to a certain extent also represents kind of created a new political openness to ask fundamental questions and people really believed first that Elizabeth Warren could win that oh, she was my hero and then uh, Bernie Sanders after that and now 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 we're stuck here with with Joe Biden who's as responsible for the last 50 years of decay in America as Trump is how do you see this choice between uh, the old plutocrat Trump and kind of the liberal plutocracy represented by Biden? Um, so I think we have to be, I, I'd say we'd have to be very careful with that. And we also, with how we assess the difference and what we say when we think about the difference. I think at one level, there are some very uh, fundamental differences with Biden, obviously between Biden and Trump. And there are absolutely, obviously things that would not have happened to the United States and to the world if a Democrat or even a moderate Republican had been in office. So canceling nuclear deal, pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement, withdrawing from the WHO very recently, dismantling parts of the Obamacare Act, the tax corporations are at record high, the tearing up of the trade agreements, the packing of the courts, the you know, amount of immigrants that have been deported. And I don't think we would have, none of these things we would have seen under a democratic tenure, I think it's fair to say even from someone who is extremely critical of establishment Democrats. Yeah. And we would also not have seen, obviously, this degree of legitimization of the kind of far right discourse, which has in turn, you know, exasperated brown and black people in the, in the United States. I mean, on the other hand, I think it would be naive to pretend that just to focus on, let's say, the Black Lives Matter movement, for example, that uh, to take the case of kind of black exclusion, it would be naive to say that this is just the result of the Trump years, right? On the contrary, I think it's unlikely that some of the creative energy that we have seen on the left in the last few months and couple of years would have been possible with a democratic president in office. So the movement has been so vital and so energized precisely 
because there has been a president like Trump in office, if you'd had an establishment Democrat, the movement would have been much meeker and much more uh, sort of responsible in a way, would have been urged to be responsible. So I think it's positive that the movement has been there and it's still there and that it might exert pressure on Biden to kind of adapt his agenda to more progressive uh, goals. But I think there is also a risk that um, parts, if Biden wins, that parts of the more grown up, responsible, sort of democratic, uh, bureaucratic, institutionalized democratic party put pressure on the left to be, uh, to moderate their demands, to adapt to other parts of the democratic party, which are also part of the coalition. Because as we know, the anti-Trump coalition is a very broad coalition. It goes from the financial times to your son. So <laughs> there's important sectors of capital, which are obviously in favor of, uh, uh, of this kind of more responsible democratic management of, of capital. So I think, and, and so I think it's, it's, it's the, the, the risk and the tension is that even if there is a Biden um, victory, these forces will then come into tension because they also ultimately have different principles and different interests. And so I think, um, and there will be pressure on the left in America, in the US, from other parts of the democratic coalition, including large parts of American business to um, adapt to the pressures of office and in part doing that by agitating the specter of look if you don't if you don't shut up there yeah. will be another Trump in uh, or you know Trump will come back but the Trump is still there his ghost is still there so the ghost of Trump will continue to to haunt the left in a way and to to be uh, invoked to uh, discipline it as well. So I think the challenge is to try and uh, shape a kind of broader political vision, which can survive these constraints, but also which I think doesn't just look nostalgically at you know the great American past or you know we've been talked about the Green New Deal. I get irritated by the term Green New Deal because not so much because of the Green part, but because of the New Deal part. Because I think people don't realize that of course you know the, the New Deal was progressive in the time in which it happened. But there was also so much ex exclusion, so much disenfranchisement in um, American society. And so the constant references to Roosevelt, for example, which ignore the fact that for all the benefits of the New Deal, uh, we mustn't forget that this was the US before the civil rights movement, while Jim Crow laws were still in full force in the South and so on. So I think it's important for us and for, and for the left that we don't just kind of keep trying to find a vision by thinking back about the past of glory that we never had or about a democracy that was never really fully there. And so the challenge is to kind of articulate, I think, a vision that can both in some ways reflect on the failures of the current um, capitalist global system, but not just as a political system, not just as a more, not just as an economic system, but also as a system of values. And so a left that can kind of integrate the demands of different marginalized groups uh, with an alternative, which is not just an alternative about policies, which comes up with, oh, we have this great new idea. It's a new policy. Everybody should be on board with this new policy, but actually gives people a vision of how does this policy shape the world and not just, you know, this part of the left in this country at this particular time. It seems to me that there are two ways of looking at Joe Biden. Either he's like the restoration of the Clinton-Obama years, and then now even in a less charismatic and more fragile figure. Or he's like the end of, of uh, the Reagan years. He's like the end of 40 years of neoliberalism. 
And we, I think we have both opportunities. Uh, it could be that this is the end of globalization of the 90s and the accelerating inequalities. And you see some of the ideas circulating around Biden are quite radical. And, and I remember after the financial crisis in 2008, where we had all the hopes for Obama, I had. Uh, and, and I really believed in the end of market fundamentalism, the end of neoliberalism. And now I have the same sensation, you know, even Financial Times are writing editorials about we must look at inequality, we must look at measures that were previously considered socialist, we, we must open the political tool, toolbox to radical measures. My question to you is, do you think that the progressive movement is more ready now than it was after the financial crisis, that there are more idea, ideas about a wealth tax and redistribution? Do you think that there's a movement around Biden that seem ready to turn this into a new era? I think, uh, I think you're right that there is a lot of creativity and you're right that there are a lot of interesting policies that are progressive policies out there. I don't think the left is ready to see this as a systemic change. And I don't think anyone is ready to see this as a systemic change. And so this is why I said at the end of you know, the previous question, I said, for me, it's not just a question of thinking about political power or economic power. For me, it's just a question of seeing a system of values. I think, um, and so this is why it's interesting when you mentioned, you know, the Financial Times, capitalism has always made concessions to progressive movements when it was in trouble, because, yeah. you know, how do you survive if you don't make concessions? Basically, you can't. So it's in, there's moments after a crisis where it's in the interest of capital to make concessions to the progressive movement. The question is, what do we call the system that we live under and what are the values that shape that system? And I don't think there is readiness or awareness that this is actually a crisis of capitalism and not just a crisis of, you know, a period in office or particular policies, a particular way of understanding. I think it's a fundamental crisis. It's a, it's a tension between capitalism and democracy that keeps coming up cyclically every now and then, you know, it's tamed and then it comes back, it tamed and it comes back. And I think we are not ready to see this as a crisis of the system. I think we see it as a failure of policy, but I think that is part of the problem to see it as a failure of policy even on the sort of most advanced um, sectors of, of the left. So when, when, when people are talking about socialism, you know, the, the socialism, which is surprising to me growing up in the 70s, that socialism is, has made a comeback like a kind of moral ideal. It's like socialism is something that has all the, the adventures of capitalism, all the consumption advantages and offer the same liberties but then you have equality on top of that. Uh, it's, it's, you know, this is how I feel about this comeback of socialism. It doesn't seem very radical to me. It seems to me like a moral ideal. How do you see, what, what do you think they're talking about when they're talking about socialism in, in America? I mean, um, I guess what they're talking about in America is maybe different from how people see it in the rest of the world, especially if you come from, uh, you know, from the socialist experience, actually from a socialist country you see that socialism is a different way of organizing society. Now, you might say that way of organizing society has had its failures, it's had uh, its history, a very traumatic history, a history that's been traumatic for those subjects. But ultimately, I think it is a system that is not built, and this is the fundamental difference from between socialism and capitalism. Socialism is a system that is not built around profit as the driving motive of society and of social interactions. So the idea in, in capitalism is that unless you enable capital to accumulate and unless you enable certain uh, groups in society, certain social classes to 
accumulate capital, there will be no return for anyone else. And it's a, a system that is shaped on this asymmetry between the people who own capital and the people who own labor. And the people who own cap capital are the ones who have a say then on how that capital is going to be distributed, when it's going to be uh, give, when more of it will go to the workers, when less of it will go to the workers, how the global order will be shaped and so on. I think, uh, and so I think you're right to say that there is obviously a moral critique that permeates both of them. And in some ways that critique is, there's aspects of that critique, which I think are common to both of them, which is why um, I think there is a lot more in common between liberalism and socialism, at least as traditions of political thought that people, then people take for, uh, assume or then Marxists have admitted historically or that we sort of take for granted. I think in both, there is a kind of concern with freedom. Both systems are worried about, you know, how do we realize freedom? How can freedom be part of our social order? And I ultimately, I see socialism as just taking that concern for freedom one step further than the liberals do. And, and, and the idea that, you know, we are in control of our lives, that we have to shape our fate, that we mustn't be dominated by structures or by processes that we have no say on. I think socialism is a body of thought that takes that concern more seriously and that radicalizes it and tries to make it part of a social order at every level, in the economic level, in the social level, in the political level. So that's why the sort of the, uh, the key word is their democratization at all levels. It's democratization of the workspace, democratization of political spaces. So, so yes, I would say there is, and it's important for me that there is a return to this moral, moral way of understanding mm -hmm. socialism, because I think it also enables us to see that, you know, socialism is not equality and liberalism is freedom, that <laughs> you, can, you, have, you don't have to choose between equality and freedom. No, exactly. I think it's because of our commitment to freedom that we believe in a socialist society in which that commitment to, to freedom is taken seriously and affects everyone who is part of that order and not just some, not just the people who happen to inherit capital or to be lucky with how they accumulate capital, but ultimately everyone who is kind of part of that um, social order. So, so I think there's a lot more in common, as I say, with egalitarian critiques of liberalism. I mean, political theory of the last 40 years has been more, actually 50 years, uh, from John Rawls onwards has been concerned with this question of how do we justify the social order that we live in to everyone? How do we live in a world that we can, what, what kind of world do we want to live in and how can we justify that world? So that's a moral question, right? And I think, you know, even liberals like Rawls ultimately concluded that um, not only a liberal sort of laissez-faire capitalism is not a good idea, but even welfare state capitalism is not a good idea because of the kind of inequalities of wealth and power that it allows people to develop and to build on and to make part of, of politics. So, so I think I see socialism as very much in that tradition. And, um, and, and, and yeah, I, I see it as just taking forward these commitments and then just taking seriously uh, the, the kind of agency that we need to realize these principles. So I think there's no great disagreement or very small disagreements between liberals and socialists, on, or at least left liberals and egalitarian liberals, on the question of what does society, what does justice require, or what does what, what does a good social order look like? But I think there are more important disagreements on the question of what kind of politics is needed to realize these um, these principles. And that's where I think a lot of liberals haven't really woken up to the scale of that challenge and to seeing that this is about a completely different political order, a completely different constitutional order, completely different legal order, completely different international order. None of it is about finding a policy that works for the next four years. I think there's, at the moment, there's this, there are 
people that are socialists or call themselves democratic socialists that are very close to political liberalism. If you look at someone like Thomas Piketty, he's very, very close to John Rawls that, that, that you mentioned. His claim would be that the ideals of the French Revolution can only be realized today as a kind of democratic socialism, that you must admit to the fact that, that the conditions for individual freedom, they are social and that, that it's a social obligation to produce these conditions. And I think it's a radical consequence of his analysis that wealth is basically social, that it's something that is granted by society. And you can have a little bit of that to yourself, but then we take it back to, to redistribute it. So my question for you would be, when you have thinkers like Thomas Piketty, or you could mention several, several others along those lines saying, liberalism does not deliver on its basic promise. Thus, we need socialism to deliver on the liberal ideas. Do you think that is inspirational for a new kind of socialism? Or do you think that it's like, do you think they're lying about the radicalism that is required by a new socialism? Do you understand the question? Yeah, I understand it. No, I think it's very important. I think it's very important that these ideas become part of the, you know, they, they circulate and they are embraced by prominent intellectuals and so on. I would say only that what's what's lacking is a kind of a sufficient amount of reflection on what kind of political organization is required to realize these ideals. So that what we're left with is not just a kind of explaining, well, this is what socialism requires, this is what justice requires, but then the job of explaining, okay, well, how do we then get from where we are to where we want to be? is left just to the institutions that we have and just to the, uh, the parties that we have or the elites that we have. But uh, I think what's maybe, I would say, difficult is to just realize that there are very strong, and this is what I think a lot of liberals, my, my friends included, left liberals don't realize <laughs> is how many current interests are stacked against that idea. Yeah. That, exactly. that, you know, this is a power struggle and there are very important and very powerful interest groups that are mobilized to defend this precise status quo that we think is immoral, that we think is failing. And so sometimes it's, this is not just the kind of, you know, oh, if we convince enough people, then, then we will all be socialists. I think to, to understand that politics is about power and to understand that a political struggle is a struggle that requires resistance, resilience, mobilization, and so on, is I think what, and, and so the, the, that what we need is a kind of further reflection on, okay, how do we organize then to bring these ideas to bear to the world is where I think we need to kind of take um, left thinking forward. We, we've seen over the last, maybe the last decade, but radicalized over the last couple of years, some very, very strong progressive movements that have achieved results that I did not think possible. Of course, most prominently the Fridays for Future movement that even, you know, put climate on top of the European Union's agenda. So today Ursula von der Leyen is more to the left on climate issues than many Danish leftists would be five years ago. You know, I think it's amazing what they have achieved. And, and you see a lot of different movements. I'm so sad of COVID because if we did not have COVID, you'd have seen the largest progressive mobilization in the history in the US right now. I'm absolutely certain you'd see 15 million people demonstrating together and mobilizing. Uh, and that would have been such a great pressure on Biden. Well, we won't have that. But, but, uh, but we know that it's a weapon that's out there and can be mobilized. How do you see the potential for these different movements, Black Lives Matter, Green, the Sunrise Movement, the Fridays for Future, all these different movements, how do you, oh, and the Me Too movement actually, it's very, very important as well here. 
how, how do you see the potential in these movements? Um, I think, uh, I mean, obviously I, I'm, I'm also very enthused by these movements and I'm also very optimistic that these movements are uh, to some extent also raising consciousness around these really important questions. I'm, uh, I would say that it's very important for me that, that the movements don't actually just stay movements. And in some ways, this was one of the lessons learned from you know, the pink tide in Latin America, including more recently, people have been talking about Bolivia and the, the Bolivian uh, revolution, and then the sort of itinerary of the Bolivian demands and so on. And I think one of, the, uh, one of the questions that emerges when one thinks about that history is that political movements are, uh, are great when they mobilize, but then when they, when they demobilize, there's very little left from them. Mm. And so what is really important is the question that one needs to ask is how do these movements last? How do they become, uh, how do they obtain a kind of life that can survive their particular contingent moment of mobilization? And this is where I think it's very important to think about the relationship between political parties and political movement and social movements more general. And a lot of my thinking has actually been around this question of how do we make sure that there is um, productive exchange between the experience of parties that are these machines that are prepared to take office, that know how to run um, institutions that have a kind of life that survives the existence, that survives this particular uh, spans of mobilization, like the social movements. But then on the other hand, have a, a problem because social movements are always much more demanding, whereas parties tend to be co-opted once they're in power. And so on the one hand, you have the kind of the knowledge of experience of institutions and organizational strength and party discipline. And on the other hand, you have these demanding ideals and you have the energy that comes from a movement. And I think it's only when the two find each other, when the two work together, as they have done, I think, in a lot of uh, Latin American countries, actually, as they have done with, the, uh, it, with, all, the, with all the flaws and the, uh, with all the weaknesses as well. But I think as they have found the sort of the synergies and the learning processes that have enabled them to work together, those movements will, I think, unfortunately, in Western Europe and in the United States, run the risk of having very short lives unless they sort of institutionalize in this way. Um, so yeah, and I think for that, the relationship between political parties, between left-wing parties and left-wing movement is much more problematic and, and, and potential an obstacle to the development of social movements in this way. Yeah, that's really a good point in the book, um, the meaning of partisanship, that because I was ready to say, I'm done with the old parties, now it's just movements, movement, movement, pressurizing the old institution, forcing reform. I was wondering, how do you see the, the experiment with the labor, uh, with Corbyn as the labor leader, if we don't talk about anti-Semitism and all that, but just the fact that he manages, managed to integrate um, the momentum movement and revitalize the old labor party through that movement. I, I think it alienated a lot of voters or, and, and the old establishment, but it also seemed to me to revitalize the labor party and demand new ideas and, and new shapes of, of action. How, how would you evaluate that experiment? I mean, I think that is a very important, uh, I think that's a very important experiment. And I think it's also historically what social democratic parties have done at their best in yes. their highlight, in the moments of, of triumph, when, uh, you know, the, 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 the idea, the difference between a political party and a social movement is that the party has also an obligation to make laws. And we want to have a say in the kind of laws that we, subject ourselves to. And so I think historically political parties 
especially the parties on the left, have been essential to this process of democratization of mass politics, precisely because they could turn the requirements, the demands of social movements into demands for political change, which then become policies and laws and so on. Now, I think the, the, the hope that has come from the Corbyn uh, moment in the Labour Party, at least the hope that I saw, was that it seemed to kind of reverse a trend in the way in which party politics has gone in Western Europe for the last 30, 40 years, and to also reverse to some extent this crisis in the, uh, the this lack of belief in political representation through political parties as such. I mean, we came from years of people who were disenchanted People were, uh, mass parties were losing members every day and the, the representative system as such was in crisis, both as a kind of structural, for structural economic reasons, but also for a crisis, for reasons to do with, I think with a crisis of ideas on the left, the crisis of identity on the left. And so I think what was really important for the Labour Party under Corbyn was its ability to combine being a party, so wanting to run in elections and wanting to win elections and wanting to have power, wanting to shape laws that are in conformity with the particular vision that we have of society, but also on the other hand being serious about being a social movement, not making these kind of institutional compromises that the parties had been making for many, many years because you know we're under pressure for funders, we're under pressure from technocrats, we're under pressure from international institutions. So there was this moment that was almost felt like a moment of liberation where you saw, well, a party can also be a party for its members. It doesn't have to be just a party for the elite, it doesn't have to be just a party for technocrats and policymakers and so on. Something like that model is I think what we need to overcome this kind of crisis of political representation. We need to ask ourselves, well, what does it mean to have politics without ideals? I think it means the triumph of technocratic uh, managerialism. But if you have ideas on the other hand, you also need the kind of collective agents that can bring these ideas to, to bear. And if you don't have them, what you're left is personality politics. You're left with, you know, X is charismatic, Y has a nice kitchen. You know, all the kind of gossipy way in which we reduce this talking about our representatives by taking an interest in their personal lives, taking an interest into their image and so on. And I think the counter to all that is to make parties not about them, not about their leaders, not about their MPs, not about their parliamentary members, to make parties about people, about their members. And this was, I think, what I saw as the sort of the greatest um, promise of the Labour Party under, under Corbyn. So um, yeah, it, the, the fact that it wasn't kind of giving in to this personality politics that to me, it was never a problem when people said, oh, you know, Corbyn is not charismatic. And I thought, well, he doesn't need to be charismatic. He just needs to be representative. <laughs> he needs to be like you. He doesn't need to be better than you. <laughs> so um, yeah, because I think a party is, a, is, a, is an agent for all of us. It's a collective agent. It's not an individual agent. It's not an agent that should be represented by an individual. It should represent and reflect the demands of a movement, of a social movement. How, how do you see, I know this is, uh, this is very early, but it's something that I often wonder is how we should see the legacy of Bernie Sanders and Jeremy Corbyn. On the one hand, you could say that we experienced decades of, of radical inequality and radical business takeover and, and tax evasion. And there was like an unaccountable capitalism that was allowed to expand itself all over the globe. And it was like a ritual that we had these old progressive patriarchs that we could put up and say, well, we cheer for the old patriarchs, but we know they'll, they'll never, that was, you know, I feel that it was kind of, it was a defeat that that was what we had, what we had to represent ourselves. And, and, you know, Bernie Sanders, as much as I love his ideals and his enthusiasm, you know, he's just an FDR Democrat, 80 years. 
later. So, so, so how would you write their story? How do you see their legacy? Um, I mean, I think they were important in connecting generations in some yeah. ways. And so I think precisely, in fact, it wasn't a coincidence that these people like Jeremy Corbyn or, or Bernie Sanders, who were almost like remnants of a different era that somehow had refused to compromise or to make the compromises required from that era, were then, you know, coming up against and enjoying this prominence and this public uh, interest in their ideas. And I think it was the interest for their ideas which mattered rather than the, you know, the persona of the people who actually filtered those ideas. I think those were irrelevant. What was important was that these were characters that were seen as characters who, who throughout their lives had maintained the commitment to certain ideals of social justice. And they were able to inspire younger generations precisely because they were the models of what does it mean to have that commitment shape your entire parliamentary life or your entire public life, your entire political life. And so I think they showed how you could be someone who is in office, who is an MP, who has been in the corridors of power their entire life and still be an outsider because the kinds of demands that you make, the kinds of uh, the, the society that you would like to live in is not the society that you're living in. And I think for, for younger generations, that was extremely important, extremely uh, motivating to, you know, to bring that to life and to bring that experience and to also in some ways be faced with that experience so as to learn from it, to see not just, and this is why I think it's also important to, to value not just the success of these characters, but yeah. also their failures to see, you know, they are a model they're a model both of how one maintains this commitment, but also of all the, uh, you know, all the flaws of those commitments, including historically. If we don't, I think another, this is another uh, thought I always have about the history of socialism and, you know, coming from Albania and so on. I don't want to see socialism of today, the moral socialism, as something that is entirely detached from the historical experience of socialism, because then we learn nothing. Then we think that we have failed, that these historical experiments have failed because the people were bad and because the leaders were flawed or the moral characters were somehow not as moral as we would be. And I think that is just not the case. I think with every individual in every historical circumstance, often your choices are shaped by circumstances. And if you don't learn historically how these choices have been shaped by circumstances, then you make up, you end up making the same mistakes even though you start by saying, oh, I'm superior, I'm more moral, of course, I would never do that. Of course, I would never, you know, disrespect my adversaries. So I think it's really important to see these histories as, as historical, to see these episodes as historical episodes and not just as sort of ad hoc, our socialism has nothing to do with Cold War socialism, we are so much better. I think that is such a, uh, so such a short-sighted way of looking at the history of socialism. Yeah, and, and I think there's another point to what you're saying is that young people became part of a history of emancipation and realized that we are on the shoulders of progress, but also on the shoulders of defeat. And, and that gives us both hope and, and realism for the, for, for, for the future. I have one last question for you because time is running. There's so many questions I would love to ask you, but I have one last question for you. Uh, when you have very strong principles and ideals for how you want a new world to be a better world, then you always look for for places in the real world where you see it's already happening. You know, you want some real world indication of something being realized all, all, already. Where, where do you find hope in what's going on today? What, what are the tendencies or the actors or the institutions that you think are moving in a hopeful direction? Well, so, okay, I am a Kantian philosophically. Yes. And if you're a Kantian, to yes. be hopeful is a moral duty. You don't <laughs> actually need to see any signs of hope in the world. You just have a duty to be hopeful because the, and, and, and if you're progressive, sort of egalitarian, I think this is the fundamental difference between the right and the left. 
I think the right in the way in which they motivate people. I think the right motivates by fear. The whole right wing uh, programs, propaganda, principles, platform, they're all an effort to say to people, look, you are so afraid. There are so many scary things out there and we need to do something. It's, it's a project fear. And I think the difference between the right and the left is that the right rules by fear and motivates by fear and the left motivates by hope, by showing you, you know, what does this uh, ideal new uh, world look like? So I think you asked me, what are the signs? I mean, so as I say, I don't necessarily personally feel, as I say, an obligation to see hope because I just, I think I have a duty to be hopeful and I am hopeful. But if I were to look for, uh, for signs of hope, uh, I mean, first of all, there's, I think the progressive movements, uh, just recently the Bolivian election, I think was a very good example of how a popular movement can actually rise and succeed against all efforts to pervert the project, to discipline it, to put it into a particular trajectory. So there may be, you know, isolated countries in the world, maybe not in the kind of advanced capitalist democracies, but I think there are examples around the world where you see the oppressed kind of raise their head. But more generally, you know, Chairman Mao used to have, used to say, there is disorder under the sky. The situation is excellent. Now that might take the hope too far, but I think we can say, well, there is a crisis. It's a global crisis. We see that crisis. I think um, we, we have seen both the global scale of the crisis and the kind of global uh, causes of that crisis in front of us. And we also see, I think, the kind of systemic nature of the crisis. So I think younger generations are able to see all of this. And I think if we continue to reflect, organize, to resist, and then to work towards an alternative, we will all try to make progress. And the more we try to make progress, the more we have signs of progress. So I think that's the kind of Kantian story about progress and about hope. From a Kantian perspective, you could also say that when the world is coming apart, you are hopeful that something better will emerge, that that is the revolutionary enthusiasm. Yeah, and you also see people who are motivated by uh, the anger against injustice. You see that injustice doesn't leave people indifferent, even if it's not an injustice that affects them personally, even if, you know, I know I don't need to be black to be troubled by the plight of black people. I don't need to be working class to be troubled by the plight of workers. And I think for, I mean, for Kant, that was one of the great signs of progress was when we see that people, citizens, who are not necessarily affected personally by injustice, are able to rise above their circumstances and take an interest into the injustice and be angry and feel the anger of the injustice against others. That is the kind of powerful uh, generator of political change. And that is what brings you to try and want to live in a better world, not just for yourself, but for everyone, for on behalf of, of humanity, as it were. And that I think is also the kind of core of, of socialism. Well, we've claimed Kant and we've claimed freedom and we've claimed, we've claimed enthusiasm for socialism. Thank you very much for spending your time with us. Thank you very much for your reflection and your inspiration. Thank you, Leah. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me. Tak for nu. Jeg håber, at det var en lige så vidunderlig rejse på tænkningens flyvende tæppe for jer med Lea Yppi, som det var for mig. Og hvis det er sådan, at man synes, det gik meget hurtigt, og man faktisk gerne vil læse det, jamen så kan jeg som altid anbefale, at man går ind på information.dk-prøv-nu og får en måneds gratis prøveabonnement på Dagbladet Information. Jeg vil gerne advare, at det kan være stærkt, stærkt vanedannende. Jeg vil også gerne anbefale, at det kan være en kammerat for resten af dit liv. Men hvis man går ind og får et prøveabonnement på Dagbladet Information, så kan man også se, hvordan interviewet med Lea Yppi ser ud på skrift. Men vi stopper jo slet ikke her, fordi efter Lea Yppi, 
der har jeg talt med en anden radikal kritiker af den amerikanske kapitalisme, nemlig ingen ringer end Sociana Zuboff, der har udgivet bogen Overvågningskapitalismens tidsalder, som vi har udgivet her på Informationsforlag, og som fortæller, hvad hun synes, der er på spil ved det amerikanske præsidentvalg, og giver sin vurdering af, om det politiske system overhovedet har en chance over for den kolossale tech-kapitalisme. Det bliver næste langsomme samtale om USA.